This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hello and welcome to Alexandra Marshall Live, a show where I invite diverse and inclusive guests pre-approved by Australia's kind and loving big state. Just kidding. We're here to talk to provocative and dangerous voices from around the world and subject them to unfair and difficult questions for your entertainment. Our guest today is broadcaster, columnist, speaker, attempted politician, senior journalist at True North, best-selling author of The Freedom Convoy, and the secret power behind the Mark Stein online throne, Andrew Lawton. Andrew, welcome to the show. Hey, it's good to be with you. I'm disappointed. I've never been the diversity pick before. So you uh, gave it to me and then snatched it away from me. Oh, you're a Canadian, so I'm, I'm counting that as some form of diversity. But uh, before we... <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> Before we get started, I see that you have yourself listed as an attempted politician. And my first question is, are you completely mad? Because everyone knows the only good thing about running for office are the professional headshots that are taken at the start of the campaign before all the mudslinging and knife throwing starts. What on earth possessed you, Andrew? So it's funny, actually, I already had the, had the headshots going in, so I didn't even get the photos out of it. You know, it was 2018, and my radio show that I used to host had just been cancelled. And there was an election coming up in my province of Ontario, and the riding that I lived in, or constituency that I lived in, didn't have a candidate yet. And it had just seemed like the perfect time to do this. And I went forward, I did my best, I lost horribly, and boy was I glad I lost, because the so-called Conservative Party for which I ran became one of the most lockdown happy pro-vaccine passport anti-freedom governments uh, when they won uh, eventually although i lost in my seat so I, i'm glad i didn't win i'll say that well your error andrew was to choose canadian politics where you've got prime minister justin trudeau lounging on the throne doing his best impression of cuban dictator fidel castro i mean forget the wuhan lab controversy i'm sure members of the canadian free press and jaded ex politicians such as yourself would like to see a paternity test for your supreme leader. Yeah, that was the, the fun thing, because he gave a few years ago when Fidel Castro died, he gave this glowing, glowing tribute to this communist dictator who had just passed. And then everyone started looking and saying, I don't know, there might be something else going on there beyond just an ideological affinity for him. Yes, it's a joke, but not quite a joke. And the rest of the world looks at Canada. And they're like, oh, I don't know. It looks a little bit sus. But uh, talking about, to, uh, you know, dictators in the press, the press are abused in two ways under a dictatorship. And the first is censorship, which we discussed last week with Rebel News founder Ezra Levant. 
But it is often forgotten that the press are used as agents of propaganda, and picking a dictator completely at random, such as Fidel Castro, he used the media to undermine his political opposition. Have you seen a similar relationship develop between Trudeau and the Canadian media during the COVID era? Well, it actually goes before then, because the, the government, and I, I don't want to take away any of Ezra's thunder, because I know he talks about a lot of these things as well, but before COVID, the government put this $600 million bailout fund together for mainstream media journalists. And, and they basically put journalists in this country that work for government-approved outlets on the government payroll. And this has become a huge problem in this country. And it's one that no one except for the Conservative Party is really wanting to put an end to. So there is a dependency by the media on the state and on the liberal government. And then beyond that, you have what seems to be a, an ideological affinity that they have for them. And, and certainly through the COVID era, that was a big problem. And we still see it now where every now and then they might run critical stories of them, but, but ultimately at their core, they are liberals. So many of the journalists that are supposed to be holding the liberal government to account. Well, as a journalist, you're also the author of The Freedom Convoy, the inside story of three weeks that shook the world. What drove you to write this book? Was it in part a desire to set the historical record straight in defiance of this lying Trudeau press? Yeah, it, it was funny. When this happened, it was clear this was a huge story. And it was a story in the making that the mainstream media was getting wrong. And, and I went to Ottawa to cover it for the first weekend. And I ended up going back later on as well. And I was looking around and I said, you know, the, the media is just wrong about this. The, the stuff that they are uh, writing about, they're not getting the proper picture of. There's stuff they aren't writing about at all. And then there's stuff they're just making up that just never happened, but is somehow managing to be part of the media narrative about this. So I, I had said to a friend of mine, you know, someone's got to write a book about this. And I kept saying that until he just told me to shut up and do it myself. So I, I did. And Good I, it was interesting because the book, the book came out in the summer and it went to the bestseller list and it was number one on the bestseller list for pretty much the entirety of the summer. And the mainstream media ignored it. They did not review it. They did not cover it. They completely had a blackout on this book, which was resonating with Canadians who understood that the media just got this story wrong. I'm absolutely astonished that you're not sitting in a jail cell for writing a book that went against the regime during the COVID era because they cracked down pretty hard on those truckers. I mean, I remember watching from Australia, they were cancelling people's bank accounts, which seems to me a very Chinese style way of handling a protest. It was. And I should say that protests of this nature are not in the Canadian DNA like they are with our friends to the United States that are born of a revolution, that love the fight. So this was actually a big deal when I'll say the right in Canada, but it wasn't just conservatives. But when the right in Canada stood up and said, we, we've had enough with this, this was a, a very big deal. And, and the government was threatened by that. The government was threatened by all of these people talking about freedom, by all of these people that didn't want to wear their masks, by all of these people that said we're through with following this unscientific vaccine mandate. And uh, the government really had this tool in the arsenal that is supposed to be used in wartime that they used to crack down on the truckers. Well, as you wrote on your Substack, uh, mainstream media coverage overwhelmingly took the Trudopian view, publishing story after story that misrepresented the convoy, its goals and its supporters. 
as you said, this almost sounds like you're living through an example of wartime journalism. Yeah, it, it became propaganda. I, I mean, at first when this was happening and you had thousands of trucks that were driving across the country and you're from Australia, you know, it's a big country and you know that this is just building up momentum. And uh, what's happening here is all of these trucks were going to the nation's capital. And at first, the media just didn't want to cover it at all. And then when they it got too big to ignore, they said, well, yeah, but it's going to be violent and, you know, it's going to be hate. And then there was no violence. And then they said, well, yeah, but they're they're trying to be uh, insurrectionists. And then someone and said, well, no, they're, they're not. And every time the narrative was disproven, they just ratcheted it up further and further until such a point went on that it was just this complete fantasy land that journalists were peddling. Like one story in particular, to give an example here, was that there was uh, members of this protest that attempted to lock apartment residents in their apartment and burn it down. And this was actually two homeless people with mental illness that lit a fire in a hotel lobby that had nothing to do with the convoy. But by the time police came out and said this was not anything to do with the convoy, this has been reported on in the press. Politicians have been sharing this. It's been said on the floor of the House of Commons, and none of these people retracted it. Yeah, well, it's a funny type of terrorist, which is what they were calling the trucker convoy, that sits there waving Canadian flags, singing the anthem and demanding freedom and a return to civil liberties. That's not your average terrorist in the modern world, I have to say. No, it was our friend Mark Stein had called it the Bouncy Castle Rebellion because they had bouncy castles and pig roast and they had a hot tub and they had saunas, all of these things that are not normally part of a terrorist attack. You know, when the terrorists were flying towards 9-11, I don't think they said, well, hang on, let's uh, roll out the inflatable hot tub in the business class section before we get there. That's not what you do when you're committing an act of terror. Yeah. They were there to reclaim life that had been taken away from them in 2019. They were there to just live a life in which no one cared who was wearing a mask, no one cared who was vaccinated, no one cared about these divisions that they were told had to be the fault lines of society. That's what they were doing. Well, in Australia, there's a, a piece of legislation they've been trying to push through, and they've got part of it through, where they're starting to demand an increase of surveillance on what they call terrorist behaviour or extremist behaviour, which they don't really define. But when they talk about it, they usually include things like the protests against the government during COVID and anything that endangers safety, which they can say, well, if you're protesting against a vaccine mandate, you're endangering public safety. Do you think there's a dangerous line here? We start calling civil protests for freedom terrorism. Well, absolutely. And we know that it's only going to be used in one direction. We have in Canada a large division around oil and gas sector development. And you have some Indigenous communities that are very resistant to oil and gas development. Usually, though, it's white liberals that appropriate Indigenous concerns against oil and gas. But uh, we had about a year and a half before the convoy, we had Indigenous groups that were protesting by blocking railways, that were setting up these little encampments on railways. They were blocking critical infrastructure. And there was no use of the Emergencies Act to deal with them. There was no rhetoric about them being terrorists. There was none of what we saw when a bunch of truckers decided to park in front of Parliament Hill. <laughs> well, I have to say that Canada came the closest to overthrowing the COVID mafia. Their freedom convoy was watched by residents imprisoned by their governments across the West. I mean, I certainly watched it from my small apartment that I hadn't been able to leave for the best part of eight months. So why, Andrew, do we see nations who were once famous 
for their history of liberty and victory over tyrannical regimes, why were its residents unable to fight against history's least talented dictators? Because let's be honest, Daniel Andrews, Jacinta Ardern and Justin Trudeau, they are the 240p dial-up version of Stalin. I think that's a good way of putting it. I think that there are two things. One is that so many people bought into the fear because they didn't see it as being oppression because they were told and they believed what they were being told that this was all hashtag for your own good, hashtag stay home, save lives and all of that. So I think that a lot of the time people really believed that what they were doing was the right thing. And the second part of that is what the governments did everywhere in Australia and Canada and the UK. And it was very brilliant. They drove wedges between people. They pre prevented them from gathering together to talk with their friends about, hey, I don't really like this policy. What do you think? They prevented them from having large family gatherings or even small sized family gatherings where you might say, you know, th this seems a little bit much, doesn't it? So by driving those wedges as early and effectively as government did, people didn't even have the work worlds in which they could get together and realize that they weren't alone in this. And it was when people started breaking down those walls because people had had enough that they started to realize, oh, wow, no, this is not a normal way to live. And, and I am not alone in this. Other people think this is a little weird, too. Well, quite literally, one of our mainstream news broadcasters said, don't invite your unvaccinated relatives to Christmas dinner because you might kill your grandparents. That's how you isolate people from the, the most important family get-togethers. And you weren't even allowed to speak to people online because they were removed from the social media network. So as you say, they were isolated and ideas were not allowed to be discussed because it might be dangerous, heaven forbid you question the government. But this might be an unfair question, but I don't care, you can handle it because you're awesome. But you... In your opinion, uh, why do you think the mainstream press has devolved into this parasite of left-wing political parties? Because we are at the mercy of an ideological monopoly. I've thought about that a lot. And I think that the practical concern is that in Canada anyway, and I'm assuming it's probably very similar in Australia, the people that are going into journalism are graduates of urban, large city journalism programs at elite universities that have never been to the rural parts of the country, that have never spoken to someone who's different from them. And it's the people that are then taken from, in, you know, in a Canadian context, downtown Toronto, that go to school in downtown Toronto, and then they're plucked in rural Saskatchewan and told to be a journalist. And they don't understand it. They don't want to understand it. So I, I think that's the practical but there's something more fundamental too. And, and you know, I, I've said to people when they talk about bias that journalists will criticize left-wing politicians. But when they criticize left-wing politicians, it's for not living up to their ideal of what a progressive politician is supposed to be. When the press criticizes conservative politicians, it's for their beliefs. It's for actually fundamentally being who they are. Yes, well, as you say, introducing your fabulous talk show on True North, you strive for irreverence, but never irrelevance, which are words you never want to see close together on an auto cue, I might add. Uh, on your show, you discuss- well, autocorrect messes it up all the time. I got to watch on my iPhone. Yes, well, my ability to say it is very difficult. Thank you very much, Andrew. But you discussed uh, Canada flirting with similar laws to Australia, in which news organizations want big tech companies like Google to pay for snippets of news stories on their search results, 
for, for those who are following along, that is the little line that you see when you search for True North News, for instance. Well, I wrote a vicious takedown of legacy media over this, but it amounted to news media steals most of their content from social media, and in return, social media brings them eyeballs and ad revenue. The media benefit immensely from search technology created by Silicon Valley and have no right to beg for handouts, chiefly because they are not victims. Andrew, are legacy media companies acting like dying whales lashing out at the only thing keeping them alive because people certainly aren't buying newspapers anymore? No, and I mentioned earlier that $600 million bailout that Justin Trudeau has given the media in Canada, but they're now completely oriented around subsidies. So now they want the tech companies to subsidize them as well to make up for the money the government's not. So right now, Google is doing what uh, Facebook did in Australia a few years back, where they're starting to talk about uh, blocking access to news stories, to news websites, uh, just because if they continue to grant access, when this bill that the Liberals are trying to do goes through a liberal in a Canadian context, which is not like the you know liberal in the Australian context. For oh, like, I don't know. It's pretty I, I close, always, uh, Andrew. It's very close. Now. There's <laughs> yeah, well, literally yeah, no point distinguishing but... it anymore because they're the same thing. <laughs> Fair enough. But uh, they're, they're doing this. And, and I think that what they're like, I don't like big tech companies, but I don't like big government. And when the two of them are up against each other, I'm tacitly and reluctantly siding with big tech because the result is government picking and choosing winners and picking and choosing their friends in the media. And then they're turning to these tech companies and saying, well, you have to now pay these people for voluntarily using your platforms to amplify their audiences. And I, I'm actually glad that the tech companies are doing what they did in Australia and sort of calling the bluff on the, of the government on this. Oh, it's absolutely ridiculous. And we have this increasing desire from our government to censor big tech for, for the good of, uh, what are they called? Something like safety or on, online safety. But of course, they don't mean online safety for the citizens. They don't like it when people are allowed to criticize politicians online anonymously. That's what they want to stop. It's got nothing to do with protecting the civil people, the people or our protections. If that was the case, they would have cracked down on the censorship going on during COVID where big tech ignored its protected status as a platform and acted very deliberately as publishers. Oh, yeah. And I remember in May when I was at the, the World Economic Forum uh, reporting on it for True North, one of the speakers was your, I think she's like the e-safety commissioner or something. Oh, Julie no. Inman Grant is her yeah, name. I, yeah, I'm, and I she, apologize she was on a panel saying, oh, we existence. need to do all these things like... <sighs> like recalibrate freedom of expression. And I'm like, well, I, don't, I, I mean, I want to recalibrate freedom of expression, but I, when I say that, I don't mean what the government, I fear, means. She wants to basically reimagine free speech to make it kinder, which we all know what that's going to mean. But you talk about uh, Davos. You took a Mecca-style pilgrimage to Davos in the cash-capped mountains of Switzerland to cover the World Economic Forum's infamous conference. It was a journey that nearly killed you. Uh, the answers given by Schwab and Greta when they're accosted in the snow are of little interest. What the viewers want to know is, did you get a sense of the ominous backrooms looming behind the public facade? 
Yes, I did actually. So I, I will say to the World Economic Forum's credit, when I went in May, I was without papers. But this time they actually gave me a press pass, which uh, it doesn't really give you all that much access, but it lets you go into certain areas you couldn't or I couldn't when I was there in May. And they make a big deal about how all of their sessions are public or most of them are public. And you say, OK, that's fine. You can hear what they're talking about. And then you go in there. And the second you walk into the conference room, there's you know this giant grandiose coat check and then there's you know the juice bar that is selling you all the healthy sustainable juices that they're offering uh no crickets or anything like that and then there's this big sign that i saw that was multilateral and bilateral meeting rooms and i'm like why this is not a government this is not an association of governments this is a place that has no authority whatsoever it just has influence because people have decided to give it influence and then you see going into these rooms oh there's the prime minister of belgium oh there's the deputy prime minister of canada and you wonder why are all these people having these meetings which never appear on any public agenda which are never disclosed what are they discussing maybe they're talking about nothing of substance or maybe they're reaching all of these deals with people like klaus Schwab, who actually you cannot vote out, you cannot get rid of. And it was tremendously, not surprising, but illuminating just to see how brazen they are that they're running a, a shadow United Nations in Davos. That's a great way of describing it, a shadow United Nations. But it's always Switzerland pretending to be neutral while evil gathers. And I use evil loosely because there's something unnerving about seeing political, corporate and social influence sitting so closely together away from the eyes of the peasants. Yeah, and it used to be the, the left that was raising these issues. They say, oh, you know, we don't like all of these corporate interests and big government interests there. And, and now it's uh, changed a little bit where you have some people on like the really far left, like the Extinction Rebellion types that just don't like that they're all climate criminals. But it's people on the right now that are saying, hold on, this is not what we had in mind. You know, we're all for capitalism, but not it's not real capitalism when it's all of these energy company CEOs and these uh, tech company CEOs and these uh, global leaders and heads of state and government that are all here and they just come out and have somehow solved all of these policy issues without any democratic input. Well, you got to walk among the gods and in all seriousness, we talk about class divides in history. Uh, but is there a feeling among the stars of Davos that they are above their fellow citizens and above questioning by the press and behaving essentially like medieval royalty, which socialists pretend to hate, but they do seem to emulate them the first chance they get? Yeah, and I, I think, you know, it's interesting. There was this one uh, woman from Japan I met there, uh, Masako Ganaha, who's an independent journalist uh, that I had never heard of, but has quite a large audience. And she actually ran into Klaus Schwab on the street. And she's very, very polite. She's a very petite woman. She's going up and ever so nicely trying to ask him a question. And he, he comes to her and says, you know, what's the media are you with? And she says, I'm an independent journalist. And he says, no, thank you, and walks away. And, you know, when that that clip, I think, speaks volumes here, that when you acknowledge you're an independent journalist, Klaus Schwab wants nothing to do with you. You're basically saying, hi, I'm carrying the plague of free thought if you acknowledge that you're an independent <laughs> journalist. And that very much upsets people at Davos. But collectivist nations, be they socialist or communist or fascist, 
are the global leaders in pollution and greenhouse gas emissions. That is statistical across the world wherever they appear. It turns out that collectivists are very bad guardians of the environment by miles. If the World Economic Forum is all about trusting the science, why aren't the likes of Greta Thunberg trying to ban socialism and convert nations like China into capitalism, considering it is clearly the best way to save the environment as they pretend to be all about? Well, because they none of them actually care. And, you know, it's all about their own private interests. And, and I'll, I'll say that the corporate leaders who go to Davos, I, I'm a little bit more forgiving of than the politicians because they're going there because they're actually deriving great benefit from shelling out hundreds of thousands of dollars to get access to people like Klaus Schwab and Tony Blair and all of these. You know, it, but it's odd, though, because there was one panel uh, that I went to on something to do with, you know, net transition to net zero, something or other. And there was this Australian mining executive named Andrew Forrest. And I, I can't remember the company he was with, but he was Forrest on this you. panel discussion talking about, oh, yes, we need to do more to get to net zero and transition away from oil and gas. And, and I'm like, well, this is odd because usually the mining industry is the one that is uh, getting, you know, all attacked for not being green enough. And then, you know, I do my 30 seconds of Googling and find out that uh, his company is heavily invested in lithium mining, which is needed for all of the batteries that he's saying everyone in the world needs to get. So the, their interests are very transparent and they're not believers, but we all have to be. What I find interesting that you bring up a mining executive is you're quite right. Some of the largest proponents of net zero and transition are mining corporations and their executives and their investors. And that's because net zero has given these companies the opportunity to increase the value of their previously low value materials and metals because they're used in the production of solar panels mm. and wind turbines. They're not much used for anything productive like actually generating energy, but they are of interest to the net zero club. So you're right, there is a conflict of interest here where this is a mining boom. It's the largest mining boom we've had in 100 years. Is this sort of... Uh, transparency not being brought out because the press aren't doing their job? I don't think they are. And, and you know, we have in Canada, and I, I don't know offhand if it's the same in Australia, but we have newspapers that have climate change reporters, where that's their beat. That's their entire MO, is to write about and report about climate change. And, and it's driven from an ideological place, because they're not interviewing people that say, actually, the world is not uh, bursting into flames. They're not interviewing people that say, actually, we don't need carbon taxes. They're trying to find a story that fits a pre-approved narrative. So, uh, the media is not actually covering this in any reasonable way. And if they do, it's to say, why aren't you doing more? Why aren't you doing enough? Well, to, to uh, put a, a spin on it that's current, I just finished writing an article about Andrew Forrest, and he is being given several million dollars to take his super yacht around the coast of Western Australia to collect water samples about eDNA of fish, which if you're a billionaire, surely you can fund that kind of thing yourself. And the question becomes, well, Yes, we understand why people take money from the government, but why are our politicians giving away so much of our public money during a financial crisis they created to these projects? And as far as I can tell, it's because they want to furnish their eco PR campaign because they know they have to approve more coal and gas as the energy crisis hits home. Is it a similar problem in uh, Canada where you've got PR companies running for basically uh, net zero stuff to make the politicians happy.
Yeah, you, you've got your really large companies that are household names that are, don't really seem as concerned about this because they know that they're basically going to be fine. But when you get to the level below that, which is a, a large group in Canada, these medium-sized oil and gas companies uh, that are basically being written out of the Canadian economy by the government, it, it's quite shameful. And and in when I was in Davos, not this recent time, but last time, uh, there was one gentleman who was India's petroleum and gas minister who was on a panel discussion and he was saying oh yeah we need to accelerate the transition away from oil and gas i'm like you're in india like he's not at all from a country that's doing this and i i asked him about this on the street i ran into him and, and i i said you know is this he i my, my first question was something along the lines of you know is this even a realistic thing i i was gearing up for a bigger question and then his answer was oh yeah you know you know well, that's what we say in the room but if you talk to people in the developing world it's it's totally different so I, he didn't even care to keep up the pretense when he wasn't in the room with the davos people but the problem is people like justin trudeau uh people like your prime minister they want the affection and friendship and love of the davos crowd yes but they're not very keen on saving the world because our government has banned nuclear energy which is of course if you believe that carbon is killing the world well then you go nuclear if you're if you're actually serious and then we're banning the mining mm -hmm. of uh, uranium so the rest of the world doesn't get to have any of that benefit and Australia, as you know, holds most of the uranium. So these people don't seem to be very serious about their coming doomsday apocalypse. But uh, what is, do you like, what do you think it will take to get rid of somebody like Trudeau, considering how much has gone down and how many abuses of power that we've seen, how much corruption is going on in the Canadian political landscape? These leaders don't seem to ever be dislodged from their power. So what do you think it will actually take or will they just coast along forever until they get bored of power? Well, it's a good question and one I've become increasingly pessimistic on because Justin Trudeau has proven to be scandal proof. He, he is uh, someone who just the scandals just hit him and fall right to the ground without really denting him. And the I mean, there was some protective coating in the blackface that just kept everything else away from him, apparently. But uh, what, what was quite unfortunate, like right now, there's a huge China scandal in Canada where we're finding that uh, China interfered significantly in our last two elections, which the Liberal both won. And the big scandal, though, has been that Canada's intelligence service knew about this and was warning the government and the government under Trudeau wasn't really doing anything about it. So right now, this is actually causing a little bit of a pressure point. So maybe it will cause Canadians to be a little bit more concerned. But I think there needs to be just a wholesale culture shift right now because you need a strong conservative opposition. And the one story we see almost globally right now is that there's no strong opposition to these people. Yeah, unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be a conservative party anywhere in the Western world, which is shocking when you think about it, because conservative politics has not fallen out of favour. It's just that we don't seem to have a political class capable of having a discussion. And one wonders why that might be the case. Yeah. But that's probably the topic for another day, because we could talk forever about what happened to conservative politics in the West. But Andrew, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. It was a real pleasure to have you on. Where can we stalk you if we want to follow your work? Well, I welcome all stalkers. I'm uh, on Twitter as at Andrew Lawton, and I tend to tweet everything out there. And you can catch all my uh, show at uh, True North. And my Substack is linked on my Twitter. It's andrewlawton.substack.com. That's all from us. I'm Alexandra Marshall. Catch you next week.